Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by ExpressVPN. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. I have some bad news. Our our space mission has been postponed. Oh, no. Because we have to remain inside. I was, I was surprised for you we were going to go to space, but now we can't. So That's oh well. a big surprise. You can't just spring that on me. I got to pack. Surprise. No, you can't. You don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going anywhere. We're just gonna okay. Well, we're gonna pretend from in our bunker. <laughs> I actually am in a bunker, pretty much. Yeah, I know you are. You you mm-hmm. will withstand a lot. So we we compiled a whole bunch of um of news for this. There's lots of stuff going on. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about news about space and related subjects. But this just in, there's mole news. So we should start there. Mole news. Mole, mole news, news network. MNN. Mars News Network, Mars Mole News Network, MMNN. That's hard to say. MMNN. The lesson is, if something doesn't work, hit it with a shovel. <laughs> I could have told them that. How, how many problems have you solved in your life that way? I, very worried. I, you don't want to know. <laughs> you can't say it on a public podcast. Yes, we talked about the mole, its inability to dig coming out of the hole. And we spoke several episodes ago about basically the only... The only plan left was to use the uh, robotic arm on InSight to basically push, put pressure on the mole as it digs from behind, kind of shove it in there. And so far, it seems to be working. We're going to talk about this later. A lot of NASA and JPL and other space agencies are, are working from home or not working. And so there actually isn't a link on the NASA or JPL news site about this, but uh, someone issued a tweet saying that it seems that the approach to use the robotic arm to push the mole uh, seems to be working, which is fantastic. Again, this is basically the last trick up their sleeve, and so far, so good. That's good. This is the, you know, it's trying to dig down, learn about Mars. It can't dig down. They don't know why. I guess it's more powdery or something than they thought, and uh, they keep trying, and this is a good one. Just, yeah. Just whack it. <laughs> whack a mole. I don't know. Again, we don't have like a lot of um, information because everything's shut down. I don't know how deep they can go with this method because at some point you can't push any deeper because the hole's not that big, right? And the end of the scoop is pretty big. So I don't know how, how you know, what the end game is here, but any progress is better than where they were, where it was basically just like sticking out of the hole halfway. Yep. Yep. It's good. Something. Mm-hmm. You break it, you bought it though on Mars. That that's that's true. There's no there's no repairing. No, no. If if you hit it with a shuffle and it and it breaks, it's fine. You're gonna take the risks. That's what space exploration is all about. Good luck, mole. And and that's why this fix was last, right? They tried everything else, and they said, well, apparently it's worth the risk to try to try to do this. Yeah. All right. That's our weekly installment of the Moles News Mole Network. Mole News. MMNN. Jason. Yes. It's the year of commercial crew. Is it? Maybe. Yeah. We thought we were really rolling there until there was a global pandemic. And now... uh, It'll get you every time. We don't know. Yeah. So the good news is that, you know, normally we would be on this episode saying, hey, hey, May targeted launch for commercial crew, Crew Dragon, 
American astronauts from American soil going to the International Space Station on a SpaceX spacecraft. Two NASA NASA astronauts on board. The big step in commercial crew. They, they still have a few uh, like parachute tests to fix, but it basically looked like they were ready to go. They were setting March or setting May as the date, and they still are talking about it. But mm-hmm. th- it's unclear. I, I just have some skepticism about whether this is going to come off because of life right now. That to have uh, to have those astronauts and have a crew and have all of that stuff ready to go. Um, we're going to talk about it later. There's another mission that I think is more likely, and you know the ISS still needs to be taken care of. But um, I, I'm I feel like that they were at the point where they were going to launch in May, but now it will probably get delayed. Is my guess just because of um, people not being able to be working on it because of the um, pandemic. Yeah, there's also an issue, a potential issue with the the Falcon 9. So a few days ago, mm. on March 18th, SpaceX put another 60 Starlink satellites in orbit. This Falcon 9 did not successfully land on the drone ship. This was the first booster to fly a fifth mission, so number five. And there was an issue uh, actually at launch. So the launch was supposed to be a few days earlier than this. And so I got up and... Uh, my boys were up and, you know, they wanted to watch it. And so, uh, we're on the iPad streaming it and they basically ignited and then it, uh, aborted at ignition. So it just made a little puff of smoke like, and that was it. That's the sound it made. There was an issue with, uh, some out of class data with the uh, engine throttle up. And so it, the computer aborted it. They got that resolved. But during the mission on the 18th, one of the first stage engines so those nine engines on the first stage one of them shut down prematurely according to spacex they were still able to uh insert the second stage into orbit where it needed to go but it, they couldn't recover the the first stage because of this came in right. came in short and uh, spacex and nasa are looking at this before a commercial crew flight can take place now the commercial crew falcon 9 is new they're not going to be using uh, a flight proven as they say. <laughs> yes, recycled used car. They're not it's not a used car, it's a new car. Certified yeah. pre-owned Falcon 9. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they uh can can one really own a rocket? I think you just rent it. But uh so they want to make sure that they understand what happened here clearly before you put crew on one of these things. So between the pandemic and this, I fully expect that may that may date to slip, but uh hopefully they can work out what happened with this engine and uh move forward from it. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's always wise for them to watch this stuff and and they're a partner and they want to look at any anomalies in the launch vehicle. But, uh, you know, it seems to me like they'll figure it out and that's not going to be what what stops them. It's going to be the people. You got to have people there to go. You got to make sure that the crew is healthy, which we're going to talk about in a second. And you you don't want to you don't want to take the pandemic to the space station. So, yeah. Uh, I think it's way safer for everybody if this gets delayed a little further. And look, this is like the fifth year of commercial crew. A few more months is not a big deal to, for everyone to be safe. Exactly right. All right. I have some far out uh, space news for you. Okay. A little science news. A couple of little science items I wanted to throw into our pre-flight, pre-flight checklist. Pre-flight checklist is before Pre-fri- Halloween. Pre-flight checklist. <laughs> so Supernova 1987A. So this is a... a uh, uh, a nearby relatively it was in the i think one of the magellanic clouds uh, supernova explosion 33 years ago right after you were born yep, I, w- I was one um this is 
a so it's one of the most observed supernova explosions ever because it happened relatively close and in a modern era um, and we've learned a lot about supernovas and watching the watching not only the the moments after but the long-term aftermath of this because these you know the long term the stuff is still all moving uh, from that explosion and it keeps moving for a very long time so we can actually watch the explosion happening over the course of right now 33 years but there have been some weird things about it that have not been entirely understood even now 33 years later um, it seems like the star that exploded was a blue supergiant star, which is strange because they expect that a core collapse supernova is going to come from a red supergiant. Right. A recent study, and this is why it's it's news, is um, they ran it through a bunch of computer models to figure out. They were looking at the dispersion of radioactive nickel, which is a product of a supernova explosion, and it was asymmetric. There was this big lane of radioactive nickel going in one direction. They're like, that's unusual. That doesn't seem like it, it's right. Um, and so what they what they did, and a lot of astronomers do this. You see the, the guys who are doing um, Planet Nine searching are doing this. There are lots of astronomers who, what they're doing is they run lots and lots and lots and lots of models and see which ones result in what to get an idea of like what are the possibilities. And so they ran a bunch of models uh, for for trying to find out what would cause this kind of a nickel dispersion. And they came up with an interesting result, which is that it was a red supergiant star, but then it merged with a main sequence star like our sun that was just doing its regular kind of burning and that turned it into a blue supergiant and then boom basically hmm. um, and so you get this asymmetric core collapse which is why the nickel is kind of shooting out in one direction and it and so that's interesting because it's like that's a that's kind of a twist to the story that there was a a uh, a merger of two stars that preceded the supernova it also they've been looking for and not really finding the remnant the neutron star that's left behind by the supernova they have a new place to look now because these models suggest that it's located in further north basically for you know astronomy values of north uh than previously thought because it's asymmetric so it would be blasted off to the side a little bit so yeah um, it's just interesting more science more speculation you run a bunch of these computer models and you you start to learn things about um what you observe 33 years before and continue to observe using the the evidence in the scene in this case being this radioactive nickel it's just it's uh pretty cool yeah having the technology and better understanding decades later to explain something we've seen for a long time that's really cool yeah that's a bad day for that star you get collided with you explode that was a that was a bad day yeah that is uh that's rough that's the truth i have one more bit of uh science news for you okay this is about back in the solar system Going to go to Mercury. Okay. Uh, And there was an article in the New York Times this week about the search for life on Mercury, which is a phrase I hadn't used before. And I'm just going to say every space story seems to have a search for life angle on it. And this is something that they know that people are interested and like NASA has really played it up. And this all, I blame William Shatner. (laughs) This all goes back to whatever that was, 1995, when... Uh, there was that one report about like finding something in a rock that was in a Martian meteorite, and William Shatner tweeted that they found life on Mars, and everybody, the whole there was a media frenzy, and it's like, mm, no, not really. 
anyway, every story has that angle now. So this this story in particular is actually more about how we learn some things about Mercury um, and how our conception of Mercury up to now may not actually be right. Uh, the idea is there's this uh, what they call chaotic terrain on Mercury. It looks like a whole bunch of stuff just got kind of dropped in a jumble on the surface, which is unusual. Usually there are there are processes that we know that generate terrain, and this is terrain that kind of didn't make any sense. Um, originally, the thought was that it was uh, an asteroid hit the other side of Mercury, and then it caused uh, earthquakes that caused that terrain to get jumbled. But this, there's a new study that's just out that says the terrain being jumbled up happened thousands of years after the asteroid strike. And their feeling is that this terrain was actually caused by a sudden drop of the crust below the surface that like it dropped and everything got jumbled. Okay. And and the best explanation for that is that some sort of volatile material basically sublimated. It went from being solid to being, you know, liquid or gas and it and it erupted and it shot out of there and everything got jumbled and fell down. Now that could be water, which is the source of this whole like life on is like water is now life on because if there's water, there could be life water on Mercury. Probably not, but still it could have been water. It, it probably wasn't water even, but there was something there volatile. That's interesting. We didn't really think about that before. It's something we didn't expect. It makes you wonder what else could be behind all this. And another point in this article that I thought was fun was the idea that if you're beneath the surface of Mercury, Sort of like when we were talking about the balloon around Venus, like Mm -hmm. we think about these places as uninhabitable because we think of their surface. But in in the Venus atmosphere, there's a place where it's one Earth atmosphere pressure and the temperature is sort of 100, 110 degrees. It's actually habitable, Um, except you're going to need to wear a really good raincoat because there'll be um, acid like drops of sulfuric acid that will occasionally hit you. So don't, it's not great, but, but pretty, pretty habitable. Mercury, similarly, we think about it as incredibly hot on the side that faces the sun. And then the side that doesn't face the sun is incredibly cold. But the truth is that underneath the surface, there is probably a level at which there is uh, a temperature that is conducive to at least some life to exist hmm. again that's a long way to go to say there there could be could it be or have been life on mercury but it is an interesting idea that there there even on a place as inhabitable as mercury there might be some place somewhere in mercury that is a quote-unquote habitable zone so just uh again we don't know a lot about mercury we've talked on the show about the the limitations of the probes we've sent there or by there and how hard it is to get there because of gravity and the gravity of the sun and um, so little interesting, like new way of thinking that there might be some volatile material that we didn't expect on Mercury. Uh, I like in this article talking, one of the scientists talking about the other one, I thought he had lost it at some point. <laughs> it, it's a weird, it's a weird thing, but like it, it's funny too, because the scientists sort of are saying, okay, this part is totally right. This, this seems very likely that this was an eruption of a volatile or something. Mm-hmm. And the other part is like, meh. Maybe, probably not, maybe. And there's a lot of that in science where it's like, this part is solid, and then we go into the speculation, which is fun and a a path for future investigation, but maybe on the wackier side. I can I can get behind wacky. It got their study in the New York Times, right? I mean, there there is that, right? The the playing up of the life on Mercury kind of angle in the New York Times. That's a like I think everybody has realized. You talk about water potentially being somewhere in the solar system, and there's a science writer somewhere who's like, what What'd you say, water? And then they come running. 
All right, let's uh, let's take a break and then we'll get into how the space industry is dealing with this pandemic. How does that sound? Sounds great. I mean, it doesn't sound great. It's, it's okay. I mean, I, it's a good plan. Okay. Let's execute that plan. We'll go with that. Failure is not an option. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We all know how a VPN protects our privacy and security online, but it can take your media watching to the next level by unlocking movies and shows that are only available in other countries. This means you can do things like use ExpressVPN to binge on Doctor Who or Star Trek on the UK version of Netflix. It's really simple. Fire up the ExpressVPN, change your location to the UK, and then refresh Netflix. ExpressVPN hides your IP address so you can control where you want sites to think you're located. And you can choose from almost 100 different countries. Just think about all the media libraries you can work work your way through. So if you have anime, you can use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix. And it's not just Netflix. It works with a bunch of streaming services, Hulu, the BBC iPlayer, YouTube, and more. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast, which is what you want when you're watching shows. There's no buffering, no lag, and you can stream in HD. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more, so you can watch what you want wherever you want. I've used a bunch of different VPNs over the years, and ExpressVPN really is, I think, I think it's the fastest I've used. You really can't tell you're on a VPN, and that is not the case for some of these products. If you go to this link right now, expressvpn.com slash liftoff, you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. So support the podcast, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for the support of Liftoff and all of RelayFM. Okay, so clearly the world is like an ever-changing story, right? So so there's a lot of moving parts, but this yeah. is kind of where things are at our recording in the space As of industry. March 24th, because every day feels like a month now. It really does. So we have sort of a collection of, of uh, short, short stories here, uh, kind of what's going on around the industry uh, do you want to start with uh, our favorite expandables company? Yeah, Bigelow. So Bigelow uh, Aerospace, which made the Beam module, which is uh, on the International Space Station, has been investigating inflatable habitats. The idea that you have something that's very small that can fit in a fairing to launch it into space. And then when it gets to space, you inflate it and you end up with lots more room for people mm-hmm. and stuff in space. It's a great idea. Love it. Um, they laid off their workforce on March 23rd, which is yesterday as we're recording. It's a Las Vegas-based company. Nevada ordered that non-essential businesses closed. A spokesperson at Bigelow said to uh, SpaceNews.com's Jeff Faust that the, the company planned to hire the workers back once the emergency directive was lifted, although other people said that they interpreted it as permanent. I have a hard time, like... Maybe some of the layoffs are permanent, right? Yeah. I, I wouldn't. That wouldn't surprise me. I'd be surprised if they laid off everybody and they didn't hire anybody back because that's basically the company going out of business. They've got big government contracts. It seems unlikely, but it may be, you know, I, I worked in businesses long enough to know that if you have a scenario where you where you get uh, prompted, you, you were going to have to lay off people anyway, and now you're kind of have an excuse. Mm. I could see that happening where they lay off everybody and then they bring back not everybody later. And that isn't per- perceived as a layoff, even though it really is. Sure. 
Um, in some other states like California, space companies are able to keep working because they're uh, they're deemed essential. California's shelter in place rule says that um, aerospace is an essential industry. Like here, all you know, if you work at FedEx at the Memphis airport where like everyone's iPhone goes through every year, yeah, like, that's still open, but a bunch of places aren't. So it it, right. it depends on state to state, or if you're in a state like mine without a statewide rule, really, it's like city by city. So they've got Beam at ISS, um, and they announced plans to start uh, an expandable space station with a module with 330 cubic meters of internal volume on an Atlas V rocket that could have been uh, as early as this year. Uh, They declined a bit on a NASA project for a port on uh, a larger expandable module to be attached to the ISS. Um, and a second to support a free-flying module. There are a lot of rumors that they have financial problems. That's clearly, uh, you know, could be worsening because of this. It's unclear yeah. what exactly is going on with Bigelow Aerospace. I think they've got really great ideas, um, and if they can make their company work, then that would be great. I do feel like this sort of building is inevitable. I'm a little surprised that they push so hard for, like, the idea of their own stuff when it would seem like expanding or replacing ISS with a bunch of modules that ha- are more expansive might be a better fit for them. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. And the the layoff yesterday was 68 people. They laid off about 20 people before this. And so I think you're right that maybe some of this was already coming, but clearly this situation has made it uh, a lot worse. And so right. I don't know. I, ho- I hope to see them... Um, Oh, gosh. I hope to see them bounce back. I'm sorry. I didn't mean for that to be a joke. I, I agree, I'm Stephen, because this news is really deflating. We're so sorry. We're going to go in the corner now. Goodbye. This is the end yeah. of lift. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was holding the deflating joke. I wasn't going to make it, but no, you ruined it. I broke the seal. I'm sorry. You did. Uh, you did. And if you break the seal, what stop. happens to an inflatable habitat? Okay, sorry. Stop it. Let's talk about, uh, this is not the SLS segment, because no. this is the global pandemic segment within SLS sub-segment. But tell me what's going on with the SLS. Uh, the SLS segment has been quarantined. <laughs> So it's singing in its own house. Mm-hmm. Several NASA facilities are at what's called stage four. So NASA has this uh, emergency response framework. I'm going to put a PDF of this in the show notes because it's just interesting to see how they consider these things. But uh, a lot of, or I should say several facilities, that's the word I'm looking for, are at stage four. And that means mandatory telework. Yeah. The facility is closed except to protect life or critical infrastructure. So if you're on a console at Johnson Space Center keeping astronauts going on the space station, clearly that's to protect life and infrastructure. But other things uh, don't fall under that. So one of these facilities is Stennis in Mississippi, just south of me. That is where the first SLS booster is being prepped for its green run, that full-length test. Mm-hmm. And stage four means that that work has essentially stopped. There are st- still a few people at Stennis mostly making sure everything is safe, but the work for the green run test has stopped. And so the SLS, is it's bolted to the test stand, they, but it is uh, just hanging out there until this is lifted. So that green run test will get pushed back. And the SLS is just kind of hanging out in Mississippi. There's going to be a lot of those stories here. Um, The James Webb Space Telescope, often delayed. At least they can say this delay isn't on them. But uh, even though it is, uh, the bulk of the work is being done in California, uh, and California, as we said, is deemed aerospace essential, 
many key James Webb t- Space Telescope workers are not in California and they will not be traveling. So they have suspended what they were working on, which was integration and testing operations. And that will obviously impact the launch date because when they pick up integration and testing, integration, putting pieces together, testing, you know, they shake it and put it in a tube and do all sorts of stuff to it to make sure that it is all fine because they don't get another shot at this thing. So uh, James Webb going to get pushed back, but uh, this one's not on them. Yeah, there is no doubt that both the James Webb and the SLS timelines are being impacted, especially James Webb, which was... It had a very tight margin to hit the the new launch date, and I, I think that's out the window now. Yeah, um, it's not all things being canceled, so we do have some some missions continuing to move forward. Right. One of those is Perseverance, the newly named Mars twenty twenty rover. Remember, we spoke last time. Is there is a very brief window every twenty six months to launch? Yeah, to go to Mars, and so that is quickly approaching us. And so, a small team at Kennedy continues to prep Perseverance for its launch. They're doing things like installing the testing and sampling hardware that the rover will use to collect uh, from the Martian surface and test for things. There are two issues here, right? There is the fact that it's so late in the game that there's not as much to do, and they can do it with this small group. Which is good. And then the other thing is the launch window, right? Which is that all things being equal, they would rather not wait two years to launch this thing. Sure. So you put those two together. Also, NASA, this is an interesting little quirk. You know, NASA has its own its own planes. Yeah. Like, it, it, you fly their NASA jets. So one thing they can do if they need to get people from one NASA center to another for for critical stuff like Mars 2020, they can actually take their people on their own jets from one NASA site to another NASA site and reduce the chance of spreading anything. And that is uh, a big deal when it comes to this, like I said, that small team size, because there actually has been one Kennedy employee who has tested positive for COVID-19. NASA does say that they will stop this work too, if it comes down to that, to keep workers safe. But at this point, they feel like they can work safely and keep Mars 2020 uh, Perseverance uh, running on time because that time is quickly, quickly running out. Speaking of humans and space, the human <laughs> spaceflight operation for the ISS, uh, there's a transition there I was making. Humans, I, I believe, so there's a, a launch on a Soyuz in April mm-hmm. to the ISS that is still, it sounds like going forward, I think they may even already be essentially quarantined. And so the the Kazakhstan, you know, they're there's they're on lockdown there so those those people are ready to go up and johnson space center is supporting the iss crew now and that you know those as we saw when we went there right they're the different mission controls in the different places and there's a, a they're smaller crews but they're taking care to support the iss u.s astronaut chris cassidy is among the group that is quarantined basically already in kazakhstan ready to go on this mission so um it looks like it's all going to be safe but they will continue to monitor it's the usual story right which is they're planning on doing this it looks like it's going to be okay situation could change and if it does then it'll change yeah hopefully that that quarantine is is enough that is standard astronauts have a two-week quarantine before going to the space station so that's not something new for the current situation that the world finds itself in but hopefully it is uh, enough to uh, keep that crew safe and, and to safely go to the space station. Uh, let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about ESA. Uh, ESA has several uh, active missions that are being put on 
sort of a, a cruise control. So turning off scientific instruments and placing the spacecraft into what they call largely unattended safe configurations. So uh, a spacecraft can sort of be partially put to sleep and continue to cruise. Uh, so this includes uh, several missions, one being the Solar Orbiter, which just launched last month. It's en route uh, to its science operations orbit around the sun, so it's not doing much. It's just uh, going to be cruising towards the sun. Uh, Mars Express, which is the uh, the orbiter that has been imaging Mars since 2003, uh, that is also turning off its scientific instruments and will just be orbiting, waiting for a command to, to get back to work at some point when, when it's safe to do so. Uh, same goes for ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, which launched three years later in 2016, again, orbiting around Mars, investigating the planet's atmosphere. And then uh, lastly is a mission that I actually wasn't super familiar with called Cluster, which is uh, four spacecraft launched in 2000, orbiting Earth and studying the planet's magnetic environment and how the solar wind interacts with that. Um, so I, I read a little bit that I was unfamiliar with that mission, but these four uh, currently are the four that ESA is saying we can put these sort of in standby to keep our people home, keep them safe. And when this all clears up, uh, they should be able to wake these spacecraft back up and continue their missions. That's good. That's good. That's what you got to do. And that, that seems to be the really the space story of the moment is what do we what can we do while keeping people safe and doing the things that we have to do to keep things running, but Mm -hmm. not more than that. So if you can put something to sleep or in safe mode or something like that, then that's good. It's, I guess it's okay that nobody can talk to Voyager. I thought about that actually. If they're, if they're still doing those upgrades, that's, I I haven't actually followed up. I don't know if they're, they're working on the Australian uh, radio telescopes and if that has been slowed or stopped because of this too. So one last thing that I thought was a fun a fun story, and there are a bunch of different stories in social media posts about it, but one thing that's happened during this crisis is that astronauts who spent a lot of time on the International Space Station have been giving advice for people who are quarantined or self-isolating or whatever you want to call it, staying at home. The Peggy Whitson, Chris Hadfield, and Scott Kelly all have been uh, on TV shows and uh, posting on Instagram and all sorts of other places talking about their advice because, you know, they were isolated with a small group of other people um, and they couldn't even go outside and breathe some fresh air and take a walk. So uh, among their pieces of advice that I thought I would pass on, advice from astronauts about being in close quarters, uh, work on your interpersonal relationships because they will be strained under the stress of everybody being in one roof. So give it, mm-hmm. give it, give it some effort to make sure that everybody is being heard and that you're all connected. Remind yourself that you were working for a, a higher purpose, obviously, for uh, space. It's about like, we're going to do this because this is our mission and we're going to further human understanding and all, we're on the frontier of humanity and all of those things. For us, it's all about we need to stay inside because we're going to reduce the spread of this disease and save people's lives by uh, having people not get infected or having the hospital capacities not be overwhelmed. So remember, there's always a, a greater purpose that you're working on. Uh, focus on your personal goals. What What is your mission 
right now, and that can be getting work done. It can be other uh, fulfillments. But think about like, what are your goals? What am I supposed to do? Um, I think making it about what your plan is and what your work is instead of getting too overwhelmed with stuff that you can't control is a, is a helpful suggestion. Um, make yourself a schedule and stick to it. One of the things that International Space Station astronauts say is that every moment is sort of logged where there's like you go over here for five minutes and do this experiment and you go over here and there's 30 minutes doing this and then you're going to prep for this spacewalk tomorrow and that's going to take two hours today and then that'll be all day tomorrow. And and there's some uh, relief in that, that, that you've got a schedule and you know what to do and that you've you built that schedule for yourself, but then you get to um, rely on it. And I've had that happen uh, as a work at home person, right? It's like, I find it valuable to set myself a schedule. Pace yourself, leave time for fun activities. That's, that's another thing that like they did movie night on the ISS when these astronauts were there. Like it, it's don't make it all about, you know, your plans and your work. Try to give yourself some relief time, some recreation time. And, uh, and I think Chris Hadfield said, consider a hobby, you know, start start journaling or making art or something mm-hmm. to to give yourself another outlet if you don't have uh, an outlet right now because you are inside. So I thought that was a, a just it's a it's a fun story angle, but also these are people who have had to grapple with pretty extreme isolation and figure out tools to deal with it. And uh, so I think it's worth reminding everybody about. Yeah, I particularly like the one about a hobby. I think it's easy just to. Hey, these are the books you should read and the series you should stream. But, you know, pick up that guitar you had since high school in the hall closet and and relearn it. There, there's It is an opportunity to sort of reshape ourselves and, and in this time. And I think if you just – I know for me at least, if I just spend my time working or just like watching TV, I will feel bad <laughs> after a while. Yeah. I need some sort of outlet. And I think that's really important to consider, you know, finding something – creative within the confines of being at home to do uh, can do a lot for your brain in this time. Well, we have one last topic and it's a sad one. An Apollo astronaut died last week. It's Al Warden. He was 88 years old. He was a West Point graduate. He was an Air Force pilot and he was part of the 1966 astronaut class. He served as a member of the astronaut support crew for Apollo 9 was the backup command module pilot for Apollo 12, and then was on Apollo 15. He flew the command module Endeavor for three days while his two flight mates, Dave Scott and James Irwin, landed on the moon. He he was alone, Stephen. Mm-hmm. He was a lonely man. The World Guinness Book of Records says he calls him the most isolated human being, in fact. Hmm. During those 74 orbits around the moon, when his crew mates were on the surface... Uh, the, he was at the greatest distance from them uh, at 2,200 miles or so. So 2,200 miles away from any other human being, uh, which makes him the, the most isolated human being in history. Because you think about it, like when they go there, they're as a group. And so you have a group going to the moon. So they're isolated from humanity, but they're together. But then you send two of them down and that the one guy who's orbiting is essentially the most isolated and so it's it's a funny little quirk but Mm -hmm. but that and that's not all he made the first deep space walk because he went outside endeavor to get film canisters all the other space walks are on you know up to this point are around the earth but he went outside the uh, command module and got film canisters from cameras that were out there on the service module and then brought them back in 
Um, he also set a record by releasing a sub-satellite while he was orbiting the moon, which is the first time they'd ever done that, where they released something to keep orbiting the moon mm-hmm. after they left. Um, and that was uh, that was new. Yeah, that 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 deep space walk is... How about that? It's wild. So 39 <laughs> minutes outside of the CSM, 197,000 miles from Earth. It's wild. We're going to talk a lot about that when we get to Apollo 15, but it is an outstanding little bit of mission history. It's pretty serious. Pretty serious. Yeah. Now, un- unfortunately, Apollo 15 is also known, and I'm sure we'll get into this more uh, when we cover them. Uh, for a scandal, they brought 398 basically envelopes, commemorative envelopes that w- had stamps on them. This is part of a stamp collecting kind of thing, which was a thing. It may still be, sorry, philatelists, if you're out there. Uh, it, it, it was uh, the idea was that they would take them around the moon with them and then they'd take them back to Earth and they'd sell them and they'd put the money from the sale in trust funds for their kids. Sure. That was the idea. Now, this is this was legal. Similar actions had been done by astronauts on previous flights, and obviously NASA officials had to approve 400 envelopes being part of the bill of lading for this spaceship, right? Like, they loaded 400 envelopes on Apollo 15. But this story got out. There was negative publicity. How dare these astronauts try to, you know, make a profit from their, from the, and there's the government money, and I'm sure that there was a whole thing about it. And NASA decided to make an example of them. They never flew again. One of them was going to retire anyway, but the other two were given desk jobs, including a warden, and uh, they never flew again. And it's uh, unfortunate because... It's one of those examples where, like, should they be doing something like this? I would say probably not, but I think the application of of uh, th- this, the selectively this to them when other people had done it, is kind of unfortunate. But uh, it is it is uh, definitely a minor a minor scandal, but it ended their astronaut careers for sure. Um, Warden went on to well, let's see, he got the Distinguished Service Medal in 1971. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983, into the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 97, honored with a NASA Ambassador of Exploration Award in 2009, and finally inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum in 2016. Um, that's a great venue, by the way. I've seen a laser show at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Oh, it's pretty awesome. Nice. <laughs> pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. He had, he had uh, three children who he leaves behind. And yeah, I guess summer 21, we'll talk about Apollo 15. It's coming up quick. Not quick enough, Stephen. Not quick enough. Well, our next episode in two weeks, we'll be talking about Apollo 13. I mean, it's the, it's the second most famous Apollo mission, right? Everyone mm-hmm. knows everything about 11 and 13, but we're going to dig into it. I just have uh, just finished Jim Lovell's book, which is a really fascinating read. It's a good book. And looking forward to digging into that next time. Yeah. And then we will, given the slowdown in space news, it's possible that we will have to dig out some of our other uh, topics that we've been keeping in the hopper and uh, do those too. But next time, Apollo 13. I'm looking forward to it. That'll be great. Until then, if you want to find links to the stories we spoke about, they're over in the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 120. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up, or you can become a member to support the show directly, which Jason and I would appreciate. You can find us uh, online as well. You can find Jason on Twitter as jsnell, and you can find me there as ismh. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Stay healthy. Adios. Adios.